We're going to be looking in Galatians chapter 3 this morning at a message I call uh, before and after. Uh, verse 23, but before, uh, before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Before, before faith came, after faith came, before and after. This is a scenario that we're very familiar with. We see those advertisements all the time. Uh, maybe it's a, a weight loss product and you've got a before and after picture. Uh, somebody's got some kind of hair product and you've got a before picture and an after picture. Uh, these things come along all the time in advertising. We know what it's just talking about, a change that has happened or occurred. Uh, we know about uh, uh, some things on a much more practical level. Uh, we know about the world before COVID and after COVID, for example. And it just reminds us, before and after, there's a tremendous change that takes place. Now, changes are things that are a part of our life. We know about the changes that we need to make, whether it's a weight loss pro, uh, program, a lifestyle change, or an attitude change, a change that we need to make. Sometimes there are changes we have to make. Changes that are beyond our control. And we've had a whole lot of those in the last year. Changes that are imposed on us by government regulation or requirements. We might not agree with them. We may not like them. And certainly a lot of the changes that have happened we don't like. Uh, you know, waving at folks in church is fun. But it's no substitute for shaking hands or, or hugging. But we've had to make that change. And we understand that. Uh, changes sometimes then that we have to make. Whether we want to or not. Then there are those changes that we are going to make. Time moves along ruthlessly. And time changes us. It doesn't matter whether we like it or not. Time moves along. We are going then to make some changes whether we want to or not. Uh, we long for a way to make change easy. But that's seldom the case. It doesn't seem to matter what area a change comes to in our life. Those changes are a struggle. And sometimes there's a controversy that goes along with it. Uh, some people just by nature resist changes. And, and even when things are changing back, then they resist that too. I've seen that play out in churches. I remember one time at one church I pastored, we moved some furniture. And there were some people who were just livid about that. And then later we moved it back. And guess what? The same folks got livid all over again. They didn't like it because we changed it. Then they didn't like it when we changed it back. It's amazing. We just resist changes. And some people are more uh, in that uh, mode, I guess, than others are. But our text is presenting a before and after version of faith. And obviously that's talking about a tremendous change that has happened. And we're far along in our consideration of the book of Galatians that we know that this change was not made easy. Uh, there was a bitter controversy that played out all over the first century world. On the one hand were the Jewish people who rejected Jesus Christ and they highly resented then the fact that their religion, everything about their life and faith was being threatened and they didn't like it they didn't want that change at all 
There were many of the Jews who believed in Jesus Christ, but they did not want to give up their traditions and their worship and, and their structure that they had lived with all their life. And so they, though they believed in Christ, they basically wanted to continue on under the law. And then there were those, both Jew and Gentile, who listened to the Apostle Paul and who learned from him and all the other apostles that uh, we have a new covenant and the old covenant was going away. And they began then to try to implement that, but none of it, none of it happened easily. You'll remember that Paul was severely persecuted because of what he preached and what he was teaching. By the time of the writing of the book of Galatians, he had uh, suffered innumerable beatings. Uh, he'd even been stoned and left for dead. Ultimately, it was going to cost him his life. He would uh, die as a martyr because of his stand and his defense of the truth that we are justified, that is declared righteous in the sight of God on the basis of our faith and not on the basis of our works, whether the works regulated by the law of Moses or whether works that are put in place uh, in some other system or some other plan at some other time, it's always going to come back to that. Are we right in the sight of God because of our faith in Jesus Christ? Or are we going to be right in the sight of God because of our own works or some combination of the two? Still today, changes in belief are especially difficult for us. If you were raised in a very works-oriented religion where uh, there was a certain process that you went through and certain things that you were required to do, then it can be very difficult for you. And it's easy then to put yourself back under those old habits. And it can be difficult to enjoy the freedom that you have through your faith in Jesus Christ without being constantly tempted to go back to this performance-based idea. We are bombarded constantly in America today of those by those alleging that God's blessings are available and the, even miracles are available if we do the right things in the right way or, or we give to the right ministry. Then God's blessing and God's favor can come to us on the basis of what we do. And it brings us back then to that same old issue. Are we right with God? And do we experience his blessings and the benefits of the new covenant by faith in Jesus Christ or is it all about our own works still the same issue today if we are justified by faith if we're right with God by faith in Jesus Christ then Paul posed the question back in verse 19 of chapter 3 which we considered last week what purpose then served the law if we are made right with God by faith, and remember Paul has established that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So all the way back, even to our father Abraham, he said people were justified by faith and that was a long time before the law was given. So if God has implemented this policy that we are right with him by faith, then why were we ever given the law to begin with? That was a very good question. And we've already partially answered that in our consideration. Look in verse 22. But the Spirit has confined all, the Scripture rather, has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. 
So we've seen that the law then put us in a state of confinement to sin from which we could not escape. It was like uh, uh, being mired in quicksand so that the more you struggled and the, the more you tried, the deeper it got a hold of you. Because it was impossible for us, you see, to keep all of the demands of the law. Uh, this was every moment of every day for our entire life that we had to do every single thing that the law required. That was impossible. It's an impossible standard. And so it confined us sin under sin. That's what it did. But our text also presents then two more things, two more descriptive phrases for what the law did for us. Answering the question then, why did God give us the law? One of the things in addition to being confined by the law is that we were under constant guard by the law. Now, if you're ever out in public these days and you feel like somebody's watching you, <laughs> they probably are. Uh, there's cameras everywhere these days, everywhere. And uh, we know that it's not just about uh, when we're out in public because we also know that, uh, you know, there's it's constant Google is always watching and Internet is always watching. Everything is out there. Uh, whatever you put on Facebook, I mean, your, your name, your kids' names, all your birthdays, everything that you put on there, everything is marked, everything was recorded, everything is marketed. Uh, so, you know, this whole idea of privacy is, is becoming a, a difficult thing for us in our culture. And it's going to get worse uh, as time goes on. It's no question of that. Um, though, do we feel like that we're being watched, that we're under guard all the time? Well, that feeling was one that the law was supposed to give us. And it does give us. Because the law was constantly watching. It was continually on guard. The log has these all-seeing eyes on us 24-7, constantly watching for any indiscretion, any failure, any mistake, and any transgression. No sin ever escaped its notice. So the law imprisoned us. Why did we have the law? The law uh, put us in captivity because it had these demands that we simply could not meet. There was no way for us to extricate ourselves from our sin. Not only that, but the law reminded us that we were on constant guard. Every indiscretion was being faithfully recorded. Everything put down. Nothing escaped. And then there was one last thing. The law was a dis disciplinarian. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Uh, the word translated schoolmaster or tutor was a word in their language, patologos. It referred to a slave who was given the task of overseeing the education of male children. If a family was well off enough to see that their male children was educated, they were placed under this schoolmaster or tutor. And he was very strict. It's kind of an ironic situation. Here's a wealthy young man with all the privileges of wealth, and yet he is under the tutelage of a slave who is a very strict disciplinarian. Parents, how does this sound? How does it sound having somebody whose responsibility it is to make sure your kids get their homework and get all their lessons done? That, that kind of sounds good, doesn't it? Uh, and, and, of course, they were so rigid in their disciplinarian. They, they had the rod, and they were constantly just, 
just uh, in the habit of flailing on those kids if they didn't get it right. They were a rigid disciplinarian. We're to see the law had them confined in a prison of sin from which there was no escape. The law guarded so they were under constant surveillance so that no indiscretion went unnoticed. And then the law disciplined every transgression so that it brought speedy and painful retribution. This is what the law was designed to do. It, do, it does that to anyone who chooses it. To anyone who rejects that our justification is by faith, whether you intend to or not. You put yourself in confinement to your sin. You put yourself under the rigid demands of the law. And you put yourself then under the exceptional, discipline, painful retribution of the law. If that's true, then why would anybody reject the concept of being justified, of being right with God because we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Why would we reject that? Well, honestly, first of all, I think some people reject it because they have this completely erroneous view of God. I mean, if you buy into this idea that God has given us this strict system, knowing beforehand that we can never keep it. So God has said, you've got to do this or you will die and go to hell forever. But he knows when he tells us to do this that we're never going to be able to do it. They ask the question, what kind of God is that? That would be a very good question. I don't know what kind of God that is, but I can tell you what kind of God it's not. That is not the God of Scripture. Because the God of Scripture has always told us, all the way back to the beginning, that justification was a matter of what? Faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. You see, the law was never given by God as a means of making ourselves right and holy and being right with God. No, that's not the way that God did it. But so many people have bought into that idea. They see these demands and they say, I can't live them. And then they look at all the people who claim to believe in these demands. And guess what? They don't live them either. And they turn away from faith in God altogether. Or they create another God and believe in him. That's happening all over the world today. And I'll say it again this morning as I've said it many, many times before. That oftentimes the people that I hear folks say, well, I don't believe in God. I could say, well, I don't believe in your kind of God either. Because the God they don't believe in is not the God of Scripture. They have a distorted view of God. And a lot of times that's because of this legalistic view that so many have claimed to believe. Others subvert the law. They do that exactly like the Pharisees did. You remember Jesus talked to the Pharisees about how they paid tithe of mint. Now, mint is a little plant, a little herb that grows, uh, grows wild, really. It can be planted, but it'll just be a perennial, and it grows and grows and grows again. They paid tithe on the mint. Now, the mint, you know, here they are. You can just see that Pharisee out picking mint in his yard. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Boop, ten. That belongs to God. Got to go down to the temple. Now, that's a very stringent, stringent, obedience to the law but he said while you're paying tithe on your mint plants you've omitted the weightier matters of the law you see God required them for for example to provide for their parents to to take care and to honor their parents 
And it was commonly practiced among them that when the father would die, then the wealth of the family, whatever it was, would pass on to the oldest son. And it was a common practice that they would leave their mothers in poverty and not take care of them. They were paying tithes on their mint plants, not taking care of their own family. They were so oriented on these minor things. Oh, you've got to do this. But they were omitting the weightier matters of the law. Legalism is always like that. When we embrace this kind of system, then over time, those who turn in that direction begin to believe in an illusion of righteousness based on the fact that they're keeping what they consider to be the important stuff. And they either change, subjugate, or just ignore the other things they're not able to do. They end up with what the singer John Conley called rose-colored glasses that shows only the beauty and hides all the truth. Regardless then of the reason why that people reject justification by faith, the reality is that many people do, but they don't realize when you reject being justified by faith in Jesus Christ, then you are confined, you are under God, and you are under guard, and you are disciplined then by the law. And you face its full condemnation. That's before faith came. But all this is one of those after pictures. We're really glad is in here. What about after faith came? But after verse 25, faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, while the law served to shut us up and guard us under discipline for every transgression, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We have been set free from that because we are the sons of God by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. That's a statement so clear and so plain you'd think that nobody would ever miss that or misconstrue it, but such is not the case. And a lot of that comes because of the next verse, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now I'm going to say this very plainly for you this morning. If I was a marine drill sergeant, I would say eyeballs. And I'm not, but I'll say it anyway. That means I want to see your eyes. That's all I can see of you right now. So let let me see them. I want to make sure you're looking and listening. Okay. There's not a drop of water in Galatians 3.27. Not a drop. The Bible does not say we are baptized in water. There's many, but it says we are baptized into Christ. We are immersed into Christ. We need to remember that long before the act of Christian baptism was established or even thought of, the word baptizo was an everyday part of the language of the first century culture. And it meant to put into, when something was put into, or something else. If it was a liquid that something was being put into, then it could be translated immerse. And that's the way we would think of it. Sometimes this immerse produced a permanent change, like uh, when dye, uh, cloth was immersed in a dye solution and it changed its color. Or, or when, when cucumbers were immersed in a lime solution and it changed it miraculously some way. I still don't understand to those amazing and wonderful things we call sweet pickles. I, I, I don't know how that works exactly, but uh, sometimes things are immersed into something and it produces a permanent change. 
And in this passage, it was exactly that concept that, that is presented, but it clearly says we are baptized or immersed into Christ. This cannot be a physical act. None of us can be physically be placed into another person. Although in Ephesians chapter 5, the physical union between a husband and wife and marriage is used as a picture of this very spiritual union that exists between Christ and his people. I don't have time to preach Ephesians 5 to you. I just encourage you to go and read it on your own and be reminded of what a precious comparison that is that's made. If we inject water baptism into this passage so as it, to make it become the means by which we are in Christ then that opens the door for a whole host of ecclesiological ordinances and rules to be imposed by the church because the church is the one then that baptizes us. And if that puts us in the, into Christ, then the church can add whatever kind of rules or regulations that it wants to. And history has shown that that's exactly what has happened and it has happened again and again and again. But this passage tells us that we are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And when we believe on Jesus, then we are immersed into Jesus Christ so that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And that to be in Christ, then, is to be in the place where every spiritual blessing is available. That's in Ephesians 1.3. You can see it right there uh, for yourself. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So when we're talking about the change that happens, the before and after, we need to understand that the change that happens to us happens because we are in Christ and Christ then is in us. All the change that God wants to accomplish in your life and mine, he accomplishes because you are in Christ, because I am in Christ, and because Christ is in you and Christ is in me. There's an often told legend that, that exists around a group of Bedouin desert people who many years ago were brought for the first time to a city where for the first time then they encountered running water and faucets that you could go up and turn and the water would come gushing out. They were amazed. And we understand then why these people immediately began to try to make arrangements to buy this miracle working faucet. And imagine then their disappointment to learn that the faucet only works because it's attached to a vast water supply. The faucet has no power to make water. As God's people, folk, we need to understand that we in and of ourselves have no power to manufacture the blessings of God. We can't do that. We can't make ourselves right with God. We can't make ourselves worthy of his blessings. We cannot do this by our own power. The blessings of God come to us because we are in Christ and because Christ is in us. We are attached then to the supply of God's blessings and that's why they can flow through us. In a practical way, that means that we are not working in order to produce a change. It means that we are working and serving Jesus Christ because we have been changed. The change has already happened. We don't go out to change. We go out from the change that God has already brought to us. 
Now, there's a threefold benefit. Out of all the potential benefits or blessings that could have been mentioned, Paul mentions three. And I believe it is because it's tied to that ritualistic prayer that the Pharisees used that always began by thanking God that they were not a Gentile, uh, that they were not a woman, and that they were not a slave. In either of those three conditions, they could never experience the fullness of God's promises under the old covenant. So because they were Jew, because they were male, because they were free, uh, they had special benefits and privileges. And so they were very thankful for that. And I believe Paul, uh, it wasn't a coincidence that out of all the potential blessings that he could have mentioned, he mentions the three that correspond to those three concepts. There is neither Jew, verse 28, nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, the crucial nature of understanding verse 27 as a spiritual rather than a physical act should be readily apparent from reading the results. First of all, he tells us that there's no racial distinction to those who are put into or immersed into Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, when you are saved, when you are born again, uh, your race does not change. I was a light-complected, Caucasian, somewhat red-headed person when I was saved. And after I was saved, I was still Caucasian, light-complected, somewhat red-headed. I really wished that my skin would have got dark so that I would tan instead of just burn and peel. But it never happened. I can say after all these years of being saved, I finally got rid of my red hair. But it's not exactly the way I intended It just happens. But the change did not happen but as a result of the new birth. What this is telling us is that when we believe on the the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no racial advantage and no racial disadvantage and no racial distinction to be left. Now, while he applied this to the Jew and the Gentile, and that's the Jews and everyone who isn't Jewish, it applies by implication to all racial distinctions. Racism was a sin in the first century. It was a sin in the 1950s, and it's still a sin today. But there's no racial distinction for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your race, whatever it is, does not mean that you are more in Christ or less in Christ. We are all in Christ Jesus by faith, regardless of what race we're from. Second, he speaks of gender distinctions to those who are in Christ. And again, when we are saved, our gender does not change. I was a male before I was saved, and I was still male after I was saved. Both male and female, though, are equally in Christ by faith, so that there are no gender advantages or disadvantages in him. Under the old covenant, there was a court of the women in the temple in Jerusalem. And a woman could go no further. But thank God there is no court of the the women in Christ Jesus. It's not there. You are in Christ regardless. If you're saved, you're in Christ regardless of whether you're male or female. And there is no advantage and no distinction between the two. Now, that does not mean that God does not still have some very clear uh, distinctions made between male and female. 
and clear roles that are established. There's some things that women can do that men can't do. Women can have babies. Men can't. It's just the way it is. Some things that men can do that women can't do. Men can father a child. Uh, A woman can't. Those distinctions are still there. And some of those distinctions, yes, carry over into the church. God has established that men would be in pastoral positions. And that he did not open uh, those positions to women. He didn't explain it very much other than to say it was what it did. What happened and that Adam was first formed and then Eve. And, and that man was given then a specific position of spiritual leadership. That's still there. But we need to understand men are no more in Christ than women are in Christ. There is no special place for men and special for women. Men are no more saved uh, than women are saved and vice versa is also true. We then see that there are no class distinctions to those who are in Christ. Paul mentions simply the slave or free. That was because in the first century world, that was about it. No middle class then. You were one or the other. But again, we can say this today. If when we are saved, it does not change us. If you were middle class when you were saved, then you were middle class afterwards. If you were upper class when you were saved, well, you were still upper class. If you were lower class, you were still lower class. Regardless of what our income level is or what bracket we fall into in the tax code, that does not change when we are born again. But thank God we can also say that being born again and being in Christ is not just something for wealthy people, but it is just as much true for the folks on the lowest level of the income range. There is room at the cross for everybody, regardless of what their income status is or what their educational level is or what their background is. If we were in another country, you could be royalty or a peasant. But either side of that, there's room for them in Jesus Christ. And he puts them all over this expression, all under the expression then, you are one in Christ Jesus. So that that means that not only are we the children of God, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ with every other person who is in Christ. And I know it's a little quaint and old-fashioned. I understand that. Uh, But every time I call you brother or sister, I'm trying to remind us all, that we're a part of God's forever family. And you're in Christ. And I'm in Christ. And that means we are connected to him. And that also means we are connected to each other as well. And we're full heirs of the promise of God in Christ. Wrapping up then today. Let's remember no system of rules and regulations. No matter where it originated from. Or how fervently it might be enforced. Whether it was from the Old Testament law of Moses. Which so many cling to. Or so many uh, want to point to the Ten Commandments still today. Or some other idea. Or somebody else's idea. Someone that we invent maybe on our own. uh, Just a set of rules that I'm going to keep. And if I keep these rules. Then I'll be a good person. And God will accept me. And if I don't keep them. Then I I won't be. And uh, you know regardless of the source from it. There is no system of rules and regulations, no matter where it comes from, no matter how fervently we try to keep them, that can ever bring about the fullness of Christian experience. Can't do it. It is as powerless as a faucet is to produce water. If the water is there, a faucet can release it. 
And if our relationship with, with God is there, if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, then we can release that and we can experience that. Our faith places us in Christ and puts Christ in us so that he's the source of everything that God intends to do for us. But that doesn't mean that there's not a real struggle going on in our life and that that struggle is not something we experience all the time because we do. As long as we're in this life, as long as we're in this body, then there's going to be a struggle to live out all the change that God has worked in us. Paul would talk about it in his message to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 14 when he would declare unequivocally that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So that even when we are are trying and, and doing our best and we're trying to offer these things to God, but that's not of faith, all of that then becomes a sin. We are saved by faith. We walk by faith. We live by faith. On that is the side of the change, all of the changes that Jesus wants to make in you. We struggle sometimes with a bad habit. Struggle sometimes with a bad attitude. Struggle sometimes with sins that we've struggled with maybe for years and we think we've got them down and then they come back. We struggle. But the way that we overcome is by faith. So we make it a matter of faith. There's a time when we have to get on our knees before God and God said, and tell him, God, I'm trusting you for this. I'm believing in Jesus Christ for this. I've tried and I, I, I've tried and I've tried and I, I just can't do it. I'm trusting you. And we make it then a matter of faith. And we find out that what we couldn't do by trying, we can do by trusting. Because God is faithful to us. And we walk by faith and we live by faith. Ultimately, we look forward to that great change that Paul promised us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it's faster than that, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, he said, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be. Not might be, not maybe. We shall be changed we shall be changed what a day that's going to be when as the old hymn writer said this robe of flesh we drop and rise to seize the everlasting prize we shall be changed but until that we live by faith we don't try to say well I believed in Jesus Christ but I'm going to be pleasing God by keeping the rules no you won't No, you won't. We do this by faith. Because we're in Christ. Christ then is in us. And the just shall live by faith. Let's stand together, please.